Hello, this is Nathan Ray, host of Because We're Not the Same. And this is my friend, Gordon Clark. Hey, Gordon. Hey. Gordon, how do we know each other? We know each other from Hybrid Church. You are one of the leaders who we are submitted under. Not anymore. Debatably not anymore. I've uh, actually transferred to uh, departments. Oh, I did not know that. I think I did too, technically. I don't even know if our department's uh, official yet. Do you have any memories of what your first impression of me was when we first met? Do you remember the first meeting we had? don't exactly remember. There's so much that goes on at Hybrid that it's really hard to like pin everything down. I remember that you're probably one of the first people that actually hugged me at church and that was back in the days where like I was really uncomfortable. I do not come from a hugging church so. Yeah I, I, I think like that's that is my first real experience with you because I remember seeing you come to church and thinking to myself, who exactly is this white guy who's coming to a mainly African church? Yeah, I, I thought that about you too. Those are my exact thoughts. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, as weird as it might sound, like I was actually suspicious of you at first. Because there was a part of me that was just like, how does he know about this church? What's his agenda? What does he want in coming to this church? Why does Sam, Pastor Sam, seem to be so taken with him? And I just decided to go up to you one day, try and get to know you. And you ended up just talking about how you were going through like this really awful time in your life. Your dad was skipping out on mortgage payments and then your mom found out and then your parents decided hey we can't really make this work anymore so we're getting divorced and as soon as I heard all of that I was just like I don't know you and I don't necessarily know if this is appropriate but at the same time I I can see that you're going through a lot and you just need a hug at the moment yeah I do I didn't even remember that part but yeah that was a that was a really rough time, and I really appreciate the fact that you took the time to listen. I'm assuming that things are going a little bit better in your life at the moment, even though technically speaking, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, work has started back up, and I did not think that I would be invited back. So God definitely showed himself a provider in, in that regard. And my mom also got employment over the pandemic. And that was a huge blessing. Are there any other ways that God has been working in your life over the last week or so? Yeah, the Lord has been exposing the fact that I try to control things in my life. And uh, a big part of like, the anxieties that I struggle with comes from the fact that I try to control the things that aren't in my control. So he showed me a way to like break everything down so that I take ownership of like things that I do have control over. For example, like I have no control over COVID-19, but I can take ownership of ways that I can limit my interactions with people so that they do not get sick with COVID-19 and I do not get sick with it. For example, wearing face masks, uh, social distancing, if I'm not feeling 100%, don't show up to church so that you're infecting the saints. Is that why uh, you didn't show up at last oh, Sunday yeah. service? I was, like, I was like so dead. Like I've been trying to like replenish my electrolytes for like the last three days, but like on Sunday and Saturday, I was like, I was so sick. 
did you get a chance to see the sermon later on? Yeah, I never, even while I'm at church, I'm still putting the, the sermon on. That way it's always available and always shareable so that I can benefit from it later on in the week if I need reference to it. And, and so the point that uh, Pastor Sam was making towards the end about how we need to be able to give up control over to God, I'm assuming that really spoke to you. The uncanniness of it was like so on point. Like I was like, okay, if God's telling me this, uh, this, uh, this, this sermon confirmed that. I, I would say I sort of have a similar experience to share in my own life over last week. I, I wouldn't necessarily say I've been struggling with, oh, I'm not in control of COVID-19 because like I already know that. I'm not in control of the large scale things. I would say, though, like, I do want to be in control of smaller scale issues like interpersonal relationships that have gone south or my finances, because like in that way, you, you do have a modicum of control. But there's also points where you're kind of just hoping that everything works out on the other end. And you know that if it doesn't work out on the other end, then you're kind of screwed. And so... Earlier that Sunday, I uh, went out to uh, go to church at uh, the summit. I believe you might have heard of it. The pastor who was there preached a message on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe I've ever heard a sermon being preached on that particular topic. And he, he was talking about the differences between the anointing of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and how you can have the gifts of the Holy Spirit without necessarily having that presence of the Holy Spirit. So for example, you can be an excellent speaker and you can use your speaking gifts to, I don't know, give anti-theistic lectures at a university or something like that. And and like I, I would say in listening to that sermon, something clicked in me in that like I could finally understand how you could have ministry leaders who were kind and externally loving and they were saying all the right things, but you could, once you took a step back and just took a look at their wider theology and, and just take it all in, you could see that they weren't all the way there, that they didn't actually have God's presence leading their lives. And so that was the first part of that day that uh, really impacted me. Once I went to hybrid and I started listening to the sermon that was being preached by Pastor Sam, I was incredibly exhausted. I was on the verge of passing out at that time. But there was something that uh, Pastor Sam, he started quoting the sermon that I had been hearing earlier that day in the summit, like word for word. And I knew that he hadn't been there to listen to that sermon. I knew that I was the only one who had been attending both services. And it did just kind of like, it gave me the idea of like, oh shoot, I need to sit up, I need to wake up, and I need to pay attention to this because God is speaking to me. If you hear God saying something twice, that's how you know you gotta listen. Yeah, and, and so I think from that experience, I think I know that uh, God, he wants me to go deeper in relationship with him, and he also wants me to just be secure in him. He doesn't necessarily want me to be worried about 
all of these other issues that are going on in my life, uh, the failed interpersonal relationships, the finances. He just wants me to be with him. And on paper, that sounds like a very welcoming idea, but I'm not really a social person and I, I don't necessarily feel comfortable being intimate with a lot of people, God included. And like, you, you could take a look at that and you could say, oh, Nathan, you're just, there's something wrong with you. You can't go beyond yourself and just embrace the love that God has in your life. And I don't know, maybe there is something wrong with me in that regard. But at the same time, though, it's just like, that's an aspect of my personality that I struggle to reconcile with what path I meant to uh, pursue in life as a follower of Christ. I feel there's limitations to my abilities to want to be intimate with others too. But there's one piece of encouragement that I use for myself that if I could uh, encourage you with. I noticed in scripture, God had like a, a calling on Moses, but Moses... He didn't think he had words to be able to speak. Like, I think he was saying that he had some sort of like speech impediment. But God is like, I'm going to equip you. And even though you may feel like you're unqualified, I'm the qualifier and you're going. So I think that if you do have God's presence and God is speaking to you, that he is going to be the strength to your weakness so that you may be used effectively especially when it comes to ministry. And as mentioned before, you're kind of going through transition in ministry. I know that it's another step in your greater journey towards preaching the gospel. But can you, can you tell us a little bit about how that journey started? Like, have you always wanted to be a minister? Is it a profession that's common in your family? Or would you say that like you had a special calling just come right out of nowhere? All of those, I guess. It is a common profession on my mother's side of the family. Like my family helped create Christian Bible camps across Canada. Last major one that we were involved in was Manitou Lake Bible Camp in Saskatchewan. They were also really, almost all the big women's conferences in Canada, my mother's side of the family helped found and fund and lead well, until someone like my great aunt passed, and then a lot of the family members that were close to her took a step back. On my father's side, I think that we had the intention of some point of having it as a traditional uh, profession because the last name Clark literally translates to cleric, which is like an office in the Catholic Church at that time in history, when our name was like written pretty much in, in the Doomsday Book, which is where anyone that wasn't Anglicanized got their Christian name pretty much uh, for their uh, last names. And our family crest is the burning bush and the motto is not consumed by fire. So pretty sure we intended to be, but I cannot at the top of my head think of anyone that is pastorally or ministry oriented. The only theologian I know that shares my last name is Gordon Haddock, clerk, and no relation I don't want to be associated with that guy at all. He had weird views. I hope I was not named after him, to be honest with you. But I feel like back in the day when I was going through a prodigal sun season, and to be honest with you, I was wrestling with wanting to remain in it. I was in Sweden, and I was staying in this really small village. 
and I could feel like the rocks calling out for revive. Now I'm pretty sure you know some things about Sweden. Like they used to be one of the biggest Lutheran strongholds in the entire world, and now barely three percent of Swedes actually identify with Christianity. And out of the three percent, uh, less than one percent actually actively attends. The rest just go for like Christmas and feast days, pretty much. So I left a small village, and I went to within the same week as in the third and fifth biggest cities. You think that the rocks are crying out loudly in a village? The sound of like the cry for revival was greater in those cities to the point where it may as well have been like trumpets blaring into my ears and it brought me to my knees. And back then, I wasn't even like that spiritually sensitive yet. Like I was pretty much leading to like the reform view of cessationism, which is like a lot of the apostolic gifts died with the apostles. So I was very surprised that I felt that at that point. And I've been guided by that ever since, that the world needs revival. And that when the Bible says that the rocks will cry out, the rocks are crying in a lot of places in the world right now. Why exactly were you in Sweden? I was in love with the Sweden and I went to see her. Did it end up working out? No, if it did, I would be there and not here. And so what happened after that? What happened after you came back from Sweden? Where did the ball start rolling for you in order for you to pursue this path of ministry in your life? Well, after I realized that I wanted to come back to the church intentionally and full time, I had to sacrifice that relationship for the good of my soul. And that was insanely difficult. It wasn't easy. There was a lot of drinking and self-loathing and pain that I had to process. And eventually the pain just got too much. So I ran away to the mountains and lived in a, a literal wilderness while I healed from my spiritual wilderness. So in that time, I climbed a few mountains and then I got into a rough spot. And when one of my ropes just wasn't providing me a safe situation anymore and I thought I was going to die. I saw this like Francis Chan video go like into my uh, flash before my eyes. My own life didn't flash before my eyes. It was a Francis Chan video. And then I, I saw Francis Chan going across the tightrope. He's like, uh, a lot of Christians are on their hands and knees because like, I can't exactly remember how he worded it, but uh, he finished it by saying, are we living the kind of life that if we went to heaven today, uh, we will be proud of ourselves if God said, well done, uh, my good and faithful child. And then I was like, no. So like I made a deal to God, like if I get off this mountain, I'm going to get down and then I'm going to head into work and give my two weeks and then I'll, then I'll go to Vanguard College in Edmonton. Well, I survived and I had to like act on my oath to God. I applied for Vanguard with that same year. Didn't get in right away. I applied in September and then didn't get accepted until January. What drew you to Vanguard specifically? They have the only undergrad in Western Canada that has a counseling specialty. And so from Vanguard, what brought you to Hybrid? Because I know that Pastor Sam... He was, I think he still is, a student at Hybrid. There have been other people from Hybrid who have gone on to Vanguard as well. I'm pretty sure that you had some interaction with those people. 
over in the campus, right? Yeah. Basically, my program director, Dr. Kath Thorlaxon, I believe she did a sermon twice at our church last summer, but she introduced me to Pastor Sam unintentionally. Like, it wasn't like Gordon Waimi, Pastor Sam. I was like, no, we were, uh, she invited us uh, to do lunch to discuss like future ministry opportunities, and Pastor Sam happened to be there. And immediately I dug whatever Sam laid down. He had like a um, captivating personality, and his intentionality, knowledge, and commitment as I got to know him was super impressive. But like, it's impressive, but like what's really more impressive than that is like Sam has this like Sam radiates love in like a way that I've never seen in a pastor before. Like uh, all those things that make him who he is and make him great are nothing compared to his love. And I think that's very biblical. And so one day in uh, in chapel at school, our student body president had us pray over churches that we marked on the map of the city of Edmonton. And I went up to the map with Pastor Sam and I was like, yo, Sam, I would have to be like the worst possible friend if I did not show up to uh, hybrid on Sunday because like literally hybrid was like 10 minutes away from my house or walking distance. So like I would literally have to be the worst possible friend not to go to hybrid if uh, it was like that close to my house. So the following Sunday, you know who was like leading worship? And it needs. So like this is what confirmed it for me. Uh, yeah so she led a lot of the worship sets at my school so i was really like moved towards action like based on her heart of worship i was like you know what Ananise, if i ever attend a church where you're worshiping at that's gonna be my home church and so that sunday she was worshiping at a hybrid church and that sold it for me i was like okay that's confirmation right there Caleb also went to my school. I didn't know him that well yet, but that service he preached that Sunday uh, made me really want to get to know him. He has an amazing knowledge of scripture and is so evident in the way he prays. I really, really admire that and really want to like develop more into a faith practice like Caleb. And uh, I also saw Salam there. I did not know Salam went to hybrid, but she's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Like she's so sacrificial in the fact that she is an introvert serving as an extrovert. And I I know that that is tough and I do not know how she does it as well. But like uh, Salam likes to say, it's by the grace of God. Salam Nana, definitely an incredible prayer person. What made you want to stay at hybrid though? Because if you're saying, well, Ani Is, wherever you're doing worship, I'm going to go and I'm going to make that my home church. Ani Is Castellanos, uh, she's doing worship over at the summit right now. So why not just say, I'm going to hop over to the summit and just go where this incredible worship leader is performing worship. What made you want to like, stick with hybrid and make it your home i have to be honest i think it at first had to do with the fact that so many of my peers at vanguard were at hybrid so i i just thought that as i could grow in them in community at church and grow with them in community at school and that that would be a 
a healthy decision for me. But after time, like I noticed that, especially studying like a pastoral care counseling, the cultural component of collectivism, which is present in a lot of like African community, it's more about the group than it is about the individual. And I was so tired of white people churches because in white people churches, there are a lot of like good things about it. But we're not in it to win it for everyone. In a lot of cases, a lot of the culture is about me and like what my feelings and my identity is like, no, I want it to be about the body of Christ. I want it to be about them. I want it to be less than me, more you. So it's like, I felt that like hybrid had this like love for like everyone. And I was really moved to it. In like three months, like I went from like a serious hater. Well, I wouldn't say a hater, but I had a very critical spirit to a lot of like evangelical traditions to actually being more uh, closely aligned with evangelical like practices within three months. And then from there, being more and more filled with the spirit, being able to like better understand scripture, that even the things that I used to say, I used to speak with a lot of hyperbole to like a shock value, like uh, conversations and to talk down to a lot of like theological concepts. But I came to the understanding that the knowledge that you have isn't meant to be people over the head. It's to bring them closer to God. And like the longer I stay at high, but the better I am able to love people. And I feel like if you're going to be in a situation that transforms you and you've been in churches before that didn't transform you, that's important if you're going to bear fruit for ministry. What kind of evangelical traditions did you take issue with before going to hybrid? Pretty much all of them. I was a hardcore cessationist. I still follow some reformed theology, but I've, I don't do cessationism anymore. I don't feel like uh, there's any place in scripture where it encourages a cessation of the gifts of the Spirit. And the passages which Calvinists argue to talk about the cessation of the gifts of the Spirit, in my opinion, are talking about in the end times when we go to heaven and gifts like raising people from the dead are no longer relevant because uh, we have the glorified body which cannot die. So you were a cessationist and you decided to go to a Pentecostal Bible college or it was just like this was literally the only option for you? was at the bachelor level i was like just i'm gonna go and i'm gonna hate it the whole time but i'm gonna get it and i'm gonna use it to go to reform seminary when i'm done it was like a step on the ladder which that was my poor attitude and i'm glad i got rebuked i do not regret that learning to love god's people better so based on your experiences and what you've been able to learn through your time in Bible college, what would you say is the state of hermeneutical understanding of scriptures within Canada and the wider world? Because you were talking about how the rocks were crying out. And so what kind of truth do you think the rocks are crying out for? I think that the rocks are crying out for revival. They want the message. They need the message. There is an urgency to our responsibility to share the gospel. Because it says, like, when, when God comes, the people are going to, like, run for rocks to hide under. 
like if that doesn't scare us into accepting our responsibility to go and make disciples of them, I think that puts us in a ethical conundrum that borderlines sin if we're not being more active in ensuring that as many people don't have to hide under the rocks. But in the more recent times, the more recent conversations, especially what's happening in America right now, even in Canada, I think that the more we continue to liberalize our society and the more we allow ourselves to our own destruction, be influenced by the horror Babylon talked about in Revelation 17, that will lead people of God away from God to their destruction and to empower the government to oppress the church. Like in Southern California right now, their COVID-19 restrictions are like more severe than any other place in the world. Like there's even talk that the churches will be shut down indefinitely. And like pretty sure you heard of like Douglas MacArthur. He's probably one of the most famous preachers in the world. Don't you mean John MacArthur? Yeah, yes. John MacArthur. Sorry, I sometimes confuse them. I love Douglas MacArthur too. But yeah, John MacArthur, he's like really like fighting and resisting the shutdowns of the churches down there. But I'm convicted that world and culture are also being influenced in the church from the inside. Like Western churches have turned away from the gospel and adopted like this cultural Gnostic narrative, which is influenced by like Black Lives Matter and things like that. And a lot of those issues are very important Christians need to wrestle with because God made everyone in his image and people should be treated as if they were made in God's image, even if they are not saved. So there is dignity to humanity, but there's a point where we lose the message in our culture because our culture is not saved. It is influenced by our own will and not God's will, our ways and not God's ways. So it turns into a a Jezebel culture and that culture is going to doom many a church just like it did the Church of Thyatira in Revelations 2. Church of Thyatira had everything going for it, and still they were seduced by culture. And when you think about it in the context of 1 Kings 16 and 21, like Jezebel was an outsider, a woman of the Phoenician people. Like the people of Israel were forbidden to like marry outside of Israel. So like within one generation, she was able to kill like most of God's people and convince the rest of them to give up uh, worshiping God properly to commit willful acts of idolatry. I'm not unconvinced that liberal theologians will start to cancel culture, any pastor that speaks on issues like sin, absolute truth, marriage, etc. And we will see a church that worships like Israel worship God in Samaria, which is to say that we will have the audacity to call on the name of the Lord, but worship him like Baal. So you think idol worship is going to become mainstream again? I would say that it's in the church right now. How so? I think that a lot of what we teach, for example, identity, we've come to believe that we could restore our own identities, which is impossible. There's uh, nothing good about humanity, nothing about humanity that can be redeemed to 
until we get the glorified body. And the only way we can become glorified is if we assume that identity of Christ and not our own identity. By focusing on us, we take the narrative away from Jesus and the offices of the Holy Spirit, and we make it about us. We make worship songs that are about us. God, do this for me. We've, we, we're turning God into um, a vending machine. Yeah, exactly. We, we, our prayers are like nothing more than grocery lists. That we're like, God, do this for us, and we'll go to church on Sunday. But we have uh, less people filling the seats than ever before. We're not honoring our uh, our grocery list deals of a prayer. It's true. I think in Canada, like last time I checked the statistics, most denominations are going down in terms of attendance. The only denomination that I know of that is actually going up is the Orthodox Church. And, and so we're talking about liberal Christians. A tendency of that kind of mindset is to assume that there are parts of the Bible that are metaphorical and should not be taken literally. Things like I don't know, the creation story or the flood or various supernatural miracles that happen in the Bible or even like just visions uh, given to prophets. And so if I might ask, where do you fall on this whole literal versus metaphorical debate? And what would you say about those who say that the Bible is amendable because it was written in a different context? I'm very open to people believing what they want so long as they can form a good, solid hermeneutic and don't have to resort to eisegesis. Now, a hermeneutic is the proper way of interpreting scripture, which is to read the context out of scripture, which is let the scripture speak for itself. Eisegesis is where you want to read your own feelings and your own opinions into it. A good way to look at it is the right way is the Bible transforms you. The wrong way is you transform the Bible. One of the teachers at at Vanguard College, he says that a text without a context is just a pretext. So any time that you're using it wrong, you're intentionally reading your own views into it. It stops being about what was what it was supposed to do, what it was supposed to say, and now it is whatever you wanted it to be, which is why we start to like take a lot of scriptures out of the context or, or don't apply them correctly. But in cases where it's open to debate and the issues are non-salvific, I firmly believe that we are to love one another, even if we're to disagree. Because if what they believe is correct and can be hermeneutically consistent, for example, uh, let's say the young earth creation or the older creation debate. This one I know very well because I'm very uh, active in this debate. The word in Genesis 1 for day that was used was not the literal word for a 24-hour period. It was a word for day to describe any measure of the unit of time. So God could have literally made the world in six seconds according to the word used for in Genesis. However, it wasn't because if we look at Jewish tradition, they did not believe it was like 
I don't think like the concept of seconds is like familiar to them for most of the history of like the Jewish people. And a lot of like the, the Jewish understanding like the word for day used, even they disagree with whether it was like a literal day or whether it was like thousands of years, it could have been months. Like as long as it like lines up with the scripture and doesn't take away from the narrative and it still conveys the same truth. We're hung up on one word and that being hung up on one word causes so much division in the church and we can't have that now when i say we can have disagreement 100 percent because the bible encourages us to iron sharpen iron but when it comes to division that's where we have to draw the line we can agree to disagree and love one another because both these views which can be correct and that we're both responsible for if, if we're wrong where it says in i'm pretty sure jeremiah where it says woe to the shepherd who leaves my flock astray so if what we believe is wrong we're going to be accountable for it when we go to heaven but you know, the arguments for both sides is so sound and both sides lead people to Christ that if we learned to agree to disagree because it draws both people to God closely, we could share that in common. But the moment that one side starts to say, you know what, you can't be Christians because you can't disagree, then we start like making it like the argument in the New Testament where the Gentiles couldn't become Christians because they weren't circumcised. Like once we start excluding our brothers and sisters in Christ, that starts to become sin. That starts to become legalism. Like some of these issues are like, non-salvific in nature and we're we're making these like mountains that we're making these crosses to die on like if these people are coming closer to god because they believe that the world was young 100 percent the power of christ to them if this other group is coming to christ and they're being empowered to do amazing things for the kingdom of god but they believe in the old earth the power of Christ to them. Like, we should uh, all be celebrating the fact that God is being preached and God is being taught and not condemning one another. However, where I draw the line is when we start to move away from like uh, the authority of scripture, the, the historical Jesus. Like, for example, I was listening to Jordan Peterson, and I know a lot of Christians love Jordan Peterson, but he likes to say things like, that Adam wasn't a historical human. Now, if you look at what Jesus says, Jesus and Paul, like Jesus was supposed to be the second Adam, which means unless there was a first Adam, there is no need for a second Adam. Because if there was no first Adam, then Jesus is first Adam. And that doesn't make any sense at all in the understanding of the scripture. There are a lot of people that would say like miracles can't happen because it defies science and therefore can't be reasoned. But that is exactly the definition of a miracle. Like a miracle defies reason, it defies science, hence why it's a miracle. The reason why the virgin birth was a miracle is because virgins can't have babies. That's a scientific fact. So the fact that a virgin had a baby 
It's a miracle. So like, just because they say these things can't happen because it defies science doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Like there's so much archaeological confirmation, like the prophecies which you brought up, especially the prophecies that Isaiah of how like God destroyed, absolutely like demolished like cities like Tyre, Sidon, absolutely punished the people of Egypt, especially around Paul. Around the same time as the prophet Isaiah, within the same narratives that were used in the book of Isaiah have been confirmed by science through the field of archaeology. A lot of the time I find that the argument is there's no proofs for this, so it can't be real until we do discover the proofs. So the argument shouldn't be there is no proof, so it's not real. The argument should be it is real and we're going to take ownership of it and we're going to find the proofs and the proofs are going to be a good witness for Christianity. It's essentially every time it confirms God's like told you so. It's in the word. The God's word is the same yesterday, today and forever. Like culture changes. God doesn't. So like... When you think about, like, for example, Isaiah 6, 1, and I'm going to finish it with this. Like, it says that God's robe fills the entire temple. Every time the kingdom of God has victory over uh, sin, over dominion, over country, people, a sovereign back in the time of Isaiah would take the flag of those that they vanquished and attach it to their robe. So the people that were under submission due to that victory would have to kiss their own flag as they worshipped the person that vanquished them. So I'm convinced that God has outlived every culture, kingdom, and throne, and his victories over them are evident of his might and power. So people just want to trust in their ways and knowledge and not God's ways and knowledge. Then God will have them submit to them to their destruction instead of inviting them into his banquet. Yeah, in the end, and that will be unfortunate. So you were talking about how believing in young earth creationism versus old earth creationism, it wasn't necessarily a requirement for salvation. What would you say for something in regards to, say, polyamory or homosexuality? The homosexuality debate is a really interesting debate right now. Just the other day, I was in this conversation with a lot of like Reformed theologians because a lot of evangelical teachers are writing books now that are passing information along that state that when Paul is talking in the New Testament condemning homosexuality, that the actual word for homosexual is actually talking about minor attracted persons, which is another garbage item for that liberal theologians are trying to defend. Basically, that can't be the case because in that culture at that time, child marriage was the cultural norm. Like there was no deviation from it. So if we're going to read the scripture, like according to our culture, it can't be in defense of like minor attracted people because what happens is they have no age of consent laws back then. So 
if they have no agic and semos back then, how do they even know that they are anything other than the normal pattern of like marriage in that time? They don't. They have no basis of comparison. It's in their culture. It's in all the cultures around them. And in fact, even well into the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, I think even until like the 1800s, maybe early 1900s, like people are still getting married at quite younger ages than we do now. And the reason why, like, a lot of, like, sociologists and stuff uh, and historians say this would happen is because historically, humanity has not enjoyed stable populations. So a lot of people used to die more at younger ages. So, like, people married younger. Guys had to be established and provide, but they didn't always have access to women that were able to bear children for the production of their society i don't know i'm not really good at that argument but essentially what i'm trying to say is like in regards to whether or not paul was talking about homosexuality he absolutely was because the same standard for like heterosexual marriage was child marriage and so if it was present in heterosexual relationships heterosexual relationships are pretty much the same exact relationship as a homosexual one except for the minor difference of same sex opposite sex so it would be essentially practiced the same way culture then culture now so it can't be what they're presenting as fact now because there is no basis of comparison for them to be making it in the past as opposed to the cultures and the norms that we consider now, which they're forcing onto scripture. But to force that onto scripture is literally the definition of exegesis, not exegesis, which you're supposed to do. So what about the arguments that say Paul, he was just wrong? What about Jonathan and David? What about Ruth and Naomi? What's the one about Ruth and Naomi? I have not heard that one. So, you know, in that part of Ruth, the book of Ruth, where Naomi is telling her daughters-in-law to go back home to Moab, but Ruth decides to just stick it out with her mother-in-law. And she says, she reaffirms her commitment in a way that most people would sort of see as like a marriage vow. And so I know this is a bit far reaching when I'm saying it right now, but there are some people who uh, interpret that scene as like Ruth going out of her way to just profess her love for her mother-in-law, which, yes, she she does love her mother-in-law quite a, a bit more than what most people tend to have for their own mothers-in-laws, but it kind of falls apart. David and Jonathan, it, it's, 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 a, it's a better argument for subtext. I wouldn't go that far. I was reading, well, more listening to Dr. Troy Rainier. He's an expert biblical counselor i don't think in my opinion that there is a better biblical counselor in the world than trey rainier i've been listening to all his videos multiple times probably seen each video that he's done uh, in his school at least five times each like i try to watch them over again every single year the last like 10 years so I'm really like impacted by this guy. He said, the reason why Jonathan was like, you know what? I know that you're going to be king 
but I'm going to be second to you. And at that point, they were connected through a soul tie. He says what that means to us t- today and what we know like our human behavior. Basically, King David had what is known as an ambivalent attachment style. And that means based on his past experiences and how he was raised, he has troubles attaching to people in healthy ways. And so I do not know how Jonathan developed a healthy attachment style, but he developed a secure attachment style. And people with secure attachment styles attract people with unhealthy attachment styles. The other person builds uh, unhealthy coping attachment to the secure one, being codependent. But the awesome thing about that is this person is so secure that like they scaffold the ability and, and scaffold is a psychological term for like transforming they're, like they're able to transform this person into like a healthier attachment style and so basically king david latched on to jonathan and they became really real close just based on that transformative power and attachment style when i heard that i was like man that is so 100 percent backed by science that is so 100 percent backed by scripture it is amazing that the amazing lord that created their brain could like create in the brain like the processes that are able to do those things i was like man that pumps me up essentially it's not that they were gay it's that their attachment styles which we all have helped them develop the kind of relationship that would allow david to grow past his weaknesses into a man after god's own heart as for Ruth and Naomi, I don't think that there's any basis of comparison because back in the time of writing of the story of Ruth, the closest cultural comparisons for marriage would have been the Babylonian Hammurabi code and not any form of code that we enjoy today. Now, if we look at the Hammurabi Code, the Hammurabi Code for marriage pretty much looks word for word the first three chapters of the book of Hosea. If you look at the book of Hosea and then compare that to the book of Ruth, there is no way that Ruth is saying, you know what, I'm going to be a lesbian with you, Ruth. It just doesn't make sense. Especially when you take into account events that happen later in the story where Naomi is trying to set Ruth up with Boaz. Yeah, like that would that just wouldn't work out. If you're in love with another woman, that and that woman was in love with you, that woman wouldn't be setting you up with a dude. Like that's counterintuitive and counterproductive. So we've been talking a lot about different pieces of theology. What do you view as like the most underrated slash neglected piece of theology in the church these days? Fire and brimstone. Like, how do people know what they're being saved from if we don't teach them what they're being saved from? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. When was the last time you heard a sermon dedicated exclusively to hell? I think, like, over 20 years ago. Like, Mm -hmm. ever since at least 1998. But ever since then, it it seems like the gospel has moved away from, like, uh, salvation to identity. How do I fit in the big picture, not why do I need to be saved?
how can I be saved? I think once you get the salvation, I think that we've moved away from salvation as being we're being saved from something until salvation is just this really good term that you should belong to. And we don't know what we're being saved from, but uh, it's a good thing because Jesus provided it. It's like, no, we need to be focused on if you do not meet these requirements, you're going to hell. And if you're not comfortable to be having those conversations, there are a lot of people that are in the church that think salvation is just a really good thing that are going to go to hell. And that is, I think that we need to like move towards this understanding that Sometimes if we have to talk about sin and that means we do love them. It doesn't actually show love is not exposing the fact that there is sin in our lives that we need to be accountable for. Why is this love? Because it shows more love to help the offices of the Holy Spirit transform people so that they can get to heaven than to not take part in ministry of reconciliation and only save yourself that's a very selfish love and we need to move away from selfish love into agape love which is god's love for us and not the selfish loves like eros and like other forms of selfish love that are individual to our interaction with the world we need a love that saves the world not benefits us you consider passionate love to be selfish? I think that God created passionate love to be pursued by men and women, and it is a gift from him. But it also says in the world that there is no temptation except that which is common to man, which means, for example, God created sex, but sin perverted a lot of like what God created. And Satan can use some of creation to tempt people, which is why a lot of sexual sin, it can be selfish. One more set of questions that I want to ask leading up to the end. What, what I'm hearing you say is that we need to do better in reaching out to people and ministering to them. I don't know, maybe you could try pitching to Pastor Sam a whole series on why people are going to hell. But thanks to COVID shaking things up, uh, do you see a future evolution in the way that people do ministry? And if so, what do you think it looks like? And how are you trying to, I guess, innovate in your own way? To be honest, I kind of predicted this almost a year before COVID hit. And around the same time, Sam was struggling to come up with a name for the Hybrid E family. Prophesied to Salem and Stamir that by the end of the year that we will be learning to do community with our online fam. And I think that we're in this like really interesting time because not only do we have to learn to do community with our online E fam, but we've essentially became the E fam. So I think that we're at this like amazing opportunity where before we would have had to put so much emphasis on how to take all our programs at hybrid, all our culture at hybrid, and how do we get from that in person into e-campus almost programs and ministries so that they can grow alongside us in ministry and teaching. But now we're at this like amazing like uh, opportunity 
opportunity where we're essentially the e-campus, the e-family, and we get to learn how to effectively integrate ministry and teaching into a way that invites people that aren't in hybrid to be with hybrid, if not embodied, in spirit. So I'm not entirely sure what that's going to look like in the future. I'm trying my best to diligently read a lot of books on discipleship and to learn a lot of like the culture and the traditions and the history of hybrid so that I can assist Caleb developing an effective discipleship for hybrid. But I think that we could still do better as a church to invite the e-family into our community. Like, for example, like our Bible studies, there should almost be a link where the e-fam from before COVID can actually join in on our Bible studies too. Like most of the Bible studies are being done over, I'm assuming over Google Meet or over some semblance of like communication technology. I think that there is a way where we could invite them into our Bible studies. And that would be amazing. Like the effectiveness of technology to integrate the e-family into the family is impeccable. For example, when they were doing Tuesday Night Prayers live, I was playing them at work in my station and a lot of the other cooks, they're not saved, but a lot of what Caleb was praying about when he was leading actually has been moving one of the cooks closer and closer to like a willingness to hear the gospel. So I think that technology used effectively and within the vision that we're going for in the right situation will be used by the Spirit to grow hybrid church and uh, establish the kingdom of heaven on earth. And do you think that we're already in a good place for that? Or do you think we have a long ways to go when it comes to our church? I think within our church in particular, if when Bible studies start back up, if we intentionally invite our EFM into the Bible studies, especially if they stay over a technology medium like we enjoy them now. I think that we are 100% following the Great Commission, going and making disciples, because they're coming every single Sunday to hear the message. But if we're also inviting them to learn and grow with us, like the non-Sunday days, then they're going into a world, wherever they are located in the world, and making disciples. I think that within six months, we can have a positive impact within six months. And that's just one thing. Could probably think of more, but not on the spot. So before we wrap up, uh, if I might ask, is there anything in particular that you'd want to plug? Books, websites, movies, etc.? I would recommend Faith Therapy by Troy Rainier. You can look him up on YouTube. All the videos are free and complete on YouTube. Troy Rainier, I think, is the greatest expert on Christian therapy. And I feel if anyone really wants to learn how to be transformed according to scripture and wants a good understanding of like how their own like personality, how their own psychology, how their own plays into how they relate to God, 
and how it impacts their faith walk, I would 100% recommend it. As for books, I read too many books, but if I have to recommend one, a 365-day Bible, you can get them in many different capacities. I use the Dr. Charles Stanley Life Principle Bible. I think it's very important to read scripture in these COVID-19 times because we want to use our time apart from the people to grow closer to God, not further from God. So we want to be in the Word more. I've been learning that a lot from like Salam and from Sunday as they've been praying. And I find that with the 365-day plan Bible, it allows you to discipline yourself in very easy ways. To read one small passage from the Old Testament, one small passage from the New Testament, one psalm, and one proverb a day. And I've felt like within the last, well, since COVID hit, that like I've never felt more at peace since I started disciplining myself in a very easy and manageable way. And can get one on Amazon for less than $10 if you find a good sale. It's usually around $10, though, if you get it as an ebook. And it's also under $40 if you get it as a paperback. I 100% recommend it if you wanted to make Bible reading more of a priority, but you live a busy life and you can't go as hard as you want to. You can break it down into a real manageable, real good way every day and it won't stress you out. It takes 15 minutes. Okay, that's good. I think that's everything that we want to go over uh, for the moment. I think you have provided a lot of valuable insights. It's really great to hear you share your story and uh, your goals and your perspectives on the church. And I, I really hope you do well in your ministry, especially when it comes to Highbridge. Amen. Thank you for having me. It was a privilege to get to speak. See you later, Gordon. And see you later, everyone. Bye. Bye. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest Gordon Clark. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.